Uh, we're going to continue this morning in worship through studying God's Word together. And uh, if you've been with us for a while, you know we're studying in the book of Mark in a series we call Marked. And it really is kind of a double entendre about the book of Mark, but also about how God marks our soul. Like there's some indicators inside of us that he's trying to draw out. We've talked before about this book and how Mark makes no room for people to believe that Jesus isn't the Son of God, right? That he makes no plan B for that. And uh, so it's pretty much out right away. And so what we end up seeing in the book of Mark is this idea that God is drawing these markings from his people. He's drawing out these inset parts of who they are through his ministry and presence in their life, right? So we've seen this. And I'm really excited today because, you know, last we said it's all about the bread, right? And there's been all these miracles. We've seen miracle after miracle that Jesus has done in his ministry up to this point in the gospel of Mark. What's really powerful about today, the way God would ordain this, is that we're right in the middle of the book of Mark, and dead smack in the middle of the book of Mark is this watershed moment, it's been called, or this tipping point. There's all this tension built up. We've, we've kind of walked with Jesus as he's walked around, done miracles, and he's fed people, he's healed people, he's forgiven sin, which is, you know, blasphemous to forgive sin. He's been accused of being a false teacher. He's been accused... Of, of being a man raised from the dead already because of what he's able to do. And today there's this moment where the whole gospel shifts. And I would say this way, you could literally think about today, we're in Mark chapter 8, and you think about today uh, Mark 8 being this kind of top of the mountain experience with Jesus. And I don't mean it doesn't get any better than this, but I mean there's this moment where everything begins to run down toward what he will ultimately do to pay the price for all the sins of the world. And so everything to now has been kind of like building curiosity and building these crowds that follow them around and the needs of the people and all these things have been building and building and building until this moment today. And you can literally look at the book of Mark and you can see that before this, there's an inordinate amount of miracles before Mark 8. And then after, we're only going to have a few more miracles because he's really turning his focus, and we'll even hear it today in the text, toward his ultimate purpose, which is not to feed people, not to heal people but to save people. It's a radical shift. And so today we're going we're gonna to study that transition in the Word. We're going to pray like we always do, that God would give us inspiration to understand it, that I could um, speak about it correctly, but you could hear about it correctly, and we would know God more fully because we've come together because of His presence. So I'm going to ask if you would to pray with me this morning. Uh, Father God, we thank you so much to be able to worship together and to, to sing your praises, which are always due to you, always due from our lips. I pray, Father, today that you would um, help us to set aside the things we've come with and we could hear from you directly, that our hearts would be soft toward you, um, that, that the, maybe the injuries and the hurts we've had can just be laid aside for this moment that we could hear from you and that we could truly um, believe in a more deep level the truth of who you are in our lives. Would you do this work through the power of your Holy Spirit? We make no illusion that we can have any success apart from you. And so ultimately we depend completely on you to reveal truth, to change our lives, indeed, Father, to save us from our rightful condemnation. May you be glorified as your word is preached and heard and understood and lived today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to go to Mark chapter 8. Um, I do have it on the slide. So I think it's page 706 if you use one of the Bibles in the chair rows that you're in. Mark chapter 8, verse 22 is where we're going to start, which is where we left off 21 last week. And there's going to be three kind of parts to today's message. And so we'll kind of walk through these individually. So we're going to hear one more time about this healing first that Jesus does. So check this out. In verse 22, they came to Bethsaida, 
And some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. That is the blind man. And so he took the blind man by the hand and he led him outside of the village. And when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands upon him, Jesus asked the man, do you see anything? He looked up and he said, I, I see people, they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes and then the man's eyes were opened and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go back into the village. To tell, and it kind of says to tell anyone what you have seen, right? So we have this moment here with Jesus where there's another miracle and, and after the many miracles you can think, well, this is another, uh, another one, right? They're beginning almost to become routine in the Gospel of Mark. Like, oh, another miracle, another person healed, another person uh, restored. But here, this is really interesting because I think a couple things that happen in this particular healing that should probably cause us pause. You know, I think there were like some like eight people that Jesus healed their vision. They were blind and he caused them to see eight different people that he encountered. And, and one thing, if you haven't caught the memo yet about this, one thing that this particular healing lays out that you will see through all the healings is that there's one thing that's the same about every healing Jesus does. There's one thing that's exactly the same about every healing that Jesus does, with, especially with vision. Do you know what it is? What's the one thing that's the same for every healing? Well, they do all see. Thanks, Lance. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> in the process of how they're healed. The truth is the result is the same. And I would even say the other thing is the same as Jesus, right? Jesus is there every time and they see every time. But if you start at the beginning where you have a blind person meeting Jesus and you end with a person, a person who's seeing now with Jesus in the middle, you have nothing in common. There's, there's nothing in common about how Jesus heals people. As a matter of fact, we, we read today a couple things that do sound familiar, right? It says, some friends brought him to Jesus. This reminds us of the story, it should remind us of the story you heard of the man on the mat who they lowered through the roof, right? They brought him to Jesus. So there's this idea that people were saying, hey, I'll walk with you and bring you to Jesus so that you might be healed. But, and, then, and then there's another thing that's kind of interesting here, that Jesus takes this man, he's been doing miracles in front of thousands of people, but he takes this man out of the city. Isn't that interesting? Did you catch that? So they go to Bethsaida, but then they leave Bethsaida and they go out into the countryside so Jesus can be alone with this guy. That doesn't say he's alone, but it's implied. They've gone away from people. They've gone to a different place. Something you might say is similar is Jesus spit. Remember he spit before for the deaf mute guy, right? Spit, put his fingers here, spit, grabbed his tongue to heal the guy. Well, maybe it's magic spit. Maybe that's what, maybe that's what's going on. Here then Jesus does it, but then look right smack in the middle. There's something that's completely radical, radical, I think, about this is that the guy's like halfway healed. Have you heard that happen before, Jesus? There have been people who've been healed who haven't been near Jesus. Just go home, your child as well. That's been, the, there's been the, no halfway point for healing. Something else I think is remarkable in this healing is that Jesus asks this man a question. I was thinking about that, right? Like, if you're Jesus and you're healing people, what would be the purpose to stop halfway and go, can you see yet? How about now? How about now? I mean, there's some questions to be answered, isn't there? Like, do you think Jesus tried the first time and failed? You think he's like, well, better go back and try again, <laughs> you know? Better try a little harder to heal this one. I didn't have all my ducks in a row. 
Do we think that's what's happening? Do we think that Jesus is asking the guy, can you see now? Because Jesus doesn't really know. Oh, maybe it worked, maybe it didn't. What do you think? Did it work, guy? Oh, I, I can't, I, well, kind of. It, it, all right, all right, let me try again. I was just thinking actually about it. When, when is it exactly that, that um, he spits? Yeah, he spits in his eyes before, right? So again, I, I just think that would be a weird way to encounter Jesus spitting in your face. That's what it seems to read like. It doesn't say he spit on his hands and rubbed his eyes. It says he spit in his eyes. Kind of radical. I see people look like trees walking around. Oh, look at 25. Once again. One more time. Jesus lays his hands on this man. And the man's eyes are open. The Bible actually says he put his hands on him and caused him to look up. Right? You see that the first time he put his, he spit and he put it and he said, the guy looks up on his own. The second time Jesus again comes back and puts his hands on him and causes him to look up and the man sees, the word says, clearly for the first time. We hear the man's good confession. A minute ago he could see people like trees. He could kind of see. But now he sees clearly. Why? The touch of Jesus. Why not the first time? There's this like progressive relationship thing, right? There's this walking along. There's this moment of it didn't work yet. This is, this is the, the friend's hope is that this man would be healed and Jesus kind of sort of does it, but not really. You know, it's a little better, Jesus, but I'm not there. And then there's this moment. I love, I love the word here because it's like this idea that Jesus is not done until you're fully healed. Do you see that? From the perspective of the blind man, which I want to talk about in a minute, from the perspective of the blind man, he might have thought Jesus was done. This is as good as it gets. People like trees, you know? I mean, Mark doesn't allow us much time to think about that, but there is the moment, isn't there? But Jesus says, well, no, let me, let me go again. Well, I'm not finished with you yet. There's this progressive relationship there's this enduring experience there's this journeying with Jesus short as it is the walking in by the way the people bring their friend to Jesus that says that he might touch him right and then Jesus takes the man by the hand and leads him out of the city there's this long journey to get to Jesus and then when they get there and Jesus touches the man he touches the man in the city to lead him out of the city there's this continued walking with Jesus and then there's a spitting in the eye and there's this half healing and there's this moment where Jesus causes the man to look up and he sees clearly for the first time wow a miracle of miracles a blind man sees it would be radical if it hadn't been so common in this book you would be blown away by Mark 8 if you hadn't read repeatedly in Mark all the stuff Jesus had done. As a matter of fact, you kind of get to where you're like, oh, well, it's another healing. Good job, Jesus. <laughs> you know? I wonder how the disciples felt at this point. Well, yeah. Yeah. Jesus heals people. That, that's what he does. But check out what the word says. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was fully restored, and he saw everything clearly, this man, right? And Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. As a matter of fact, he said, go back to your home, don't talk to anybody, get back. You know, I don't want this out. 
which is remarkable. Again, this isn't the first time we've heard that. The demons came and Jesus silenced them. You're not going to tell people who I am. They're confessing who Jesus is. The people who've been healed, the man that went to the copolis, right, was healed, who was cutting himself. So they sent him to the copolis and said, you know, you're not going with us. He went and told everybody about what Jesus did. Directly disobeying. And, and you think about that and you think, well, this is really, really um, crazy. So this man is sent home. I want to spend a moment, just a moment before we get into this next set of scripture thinking about this man's experience. I want you to put yourself in this man's shoes for a moment, having been blind. We don't know the cause of his blindness, by the way. That's not articulated in Scripture. But so blind that friends had to lead him by the hand to meet this one who might touch him and he might be healed. And then I want to remind you that Jesus, this man put his hands on, this man Jesus puts his hands on this guy who's looking for healing and leads him out of the city. Now from the, can you imagine, I want you to just think with me, just of the chaos, of the, the noise, and of the expectation, of the hopes, listen, of the hopes in the man's heart that he might one time see his friend believing this Jesus can do it, and then he's led there, and there's a, all of this, but nothing is happening, and then you leave the chaos of the city, and you're in the quiet, and Jesus is there, and then this and then you, he spits and you open your eyes and for the first time you can only just sort of kind of see. Can you imagine the moment for that guy? Can you imagine being half-sighted for a moment? You know, for us, we might say it's a half healing. Maybe that guy's thinking, I'm good. <laughs> I, I can see people kind of like trees. Yeah, this is so much better than it was. And Jesus is like, no, he puts his hand. I'm not finished with you yet. I'm going to heal you. And he begins to cause the man to see. And then for the first time, and this is it. If you don't live in that pressure of blindness, if you don't live in that place of hopelessness, that brokenness, that need, your whole life wanting to see and not, or having people around you hoping you could see and you couldn't, right? If you live that whole space, then you don't, if you don't live there, you don't understand this moment when the man's eyes are opened and he can clearly see. We're like, oh, another healing. This guy's like, what? I can see for the first time. I can see clearly everything that's happening. So you got to take that journey. You have to walk that out with that guy to understand this moment. And I want to say, to understand the moment that happens next, which is Jesus saying, now, go to your house. <laughs> don't go to the village. Go back home and don't tell anyone. I wrote a question. How in the world, how in the world could you be blind, have been healed, be able to see, and not go tell anyone? How? Go back to your house? I can see. Every person you encounter, imagine this guy. He's walking, he's like, hey, Alex, what's up? What? Right? Hey, I, I, could, I've, I see you for the first, I see my, my siblings or my parents or my kids. I see. How in the world do you go home and not talk about that? See, I, I <laughs> maybe, you can correct me if I'm wrong. It's very possible. <laughs> I think there's a teaching moment in Jesus sending these people away and saying, don't say nothing. You're right. Uh, keep this to yourself, that this happened. Because um, you can't. You can't. If Jesus intercedes in your life in that way, you can't go back and be the same. You can't pretend you're blind when you can see. There's no way. You're not going to live in your house. 
You're going to stay shut in all the time. Well, I'm just going to stay here. You're going to go out and you're going to live, man. You're going to live and you're going to celebrate and you're going to talk about Jesus just like the guy who went to the cop list did, right? He went through all the 10 cities telling everyone what Jesus did. There's no way you can keep that to yourself. This healing sets up this next movement of Scripture here, right? Which becomes this pinnacle moment in the Gospel of Mark. Look at what the word says. Jesus and his disciples went on from that village, right? To the places around Caesarea Philippi. So they just move on, right? This, they're just part of their journey. You can get the normalcy of that. They continue to walk with Jesus. And, and Jesus asks this question, which is the most pointed question in Scripture. There's a few, by the way. But this is the most pointed question in Scripture for any Christian to wrestle with. Here it is. Who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? You see, Jesus has done all these miracles and he's done all this teaching. He's talked about the kingdom of God, heaven being near and all these things. And then in this moment he says, who do people say that I am? And they're going to answer the question. They replied. Some say John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist? They thought he was back from the Herod, thought he was back from the dead, right? Others say you're Elijah, returned to the flesh. And still others say you're one of the prophets. And then Jesus says this to his disciples, those who follow him the most closely. He says, yeah, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? See? What is your confession about what I'm doing? About who I am? I know you know what the world thinks of me. I know you know the speculation, the theories, the thoughts, the possibilities. I know your friends have told you and the strangers have told you and the king and you know, everybody's complaining. I, I know you've heard the rumors. But what about you, Peter? What about you? Who, who do you say that I am? What about you, 12? What about you who are following me every day? What about you who've seen the miracles? What is it about? Who, who do you say that I am? And in this moment, I would say of holy boldness, Peter answers the question profoundly with, you are the Christ. That's what Peter thinks. You're the Christ. Now, for many of us who didn't grow up in Judaism, for many of us who didn't uh, grow up in a, the season of not hearing from prophets any longer in the silence of the Lord, we don't understand the gravity of what Peter is saying here, but Peter, Peter gets it. This word Christ, for us, it's like the last name of Jesus. I've said that many times. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's not the way that works. It's a title. It's a role. It's a person. It's a prophesied person who's unique, uniquely that person. No one else before or since will ever be Messiah. There will be one Messiah, not many Messiahs. And Peter says, you are the one anointed by God. You are the one that God has sent. You are the one that God has chosen. You are the Christ. The word actually goes on here to say, the son of the living God, which is also controversial. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's what it says in the Greek. So you have Peter's good confession here of this profound moment, right? And, and um, you might go, oh, well, how is that a, a watershed moment, right? But it truly is. Because if you think that all the healing, 
if you think that all the signs and wonders, if you think that all the following and all the care for others was in and of itself the point of Jesus, here he's, he's redefining it. By asking the question, who do the others say that I am and who do you say that I am, he's saying this is not the point of why I've come. You are the Messiah. You are the chosen one. You are the Christ. Uniquely called and qualified. This, this means in a moment here, by the way, you see, this means that for Peter and these guys who are with him, Jesus is no longer just their rabbi. You know, rabbi. Jesus is, is no longer just their Lord, like, go here and do this, go there and do that, right? Jesus, they recognize, is the Messiah. I just want you to think about that for a minute. So they're walking with Jesus, and there's all these other people following all these other leaders and all these other, you know, the Herodians, the Pharisees, right? They've all got students and they're following after him. And in a moment, Peter's confession to Jesus, they understand that that means you are the Messiah. That means that you are not elevated, but everybody else we've been talking to and talking about. You are the Christ. And in this moment, everything is crystallized. Now, look at 30. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. That sounds familiar. It's, he's the Messiah. But don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. By the way, I want to uh, walk back a little bit and remember, right? So you think, what does healings have to do with the Christ? What does healings have to do with the Messiah? Um, and we've said that he uniquely does these things, right? But here's the truth. There was much speculation about how Jesus did what Jesus did in that day. There were many people who said he was a false prophet. You remember what he said to when he was challenged in the house? He said, you say I'm working through Beelzebub. How can Beelzebub cast out demons when, when that's the, the devil? How can the devil cast out the devil? It can't happen. A house divided against itself can't stand, right? Proclaiming that the work he's doing is not of the devil, but of the Lord. So he's been called a, a, a witch doctor or a, 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 a worker of Satan by some groups already. Um, he's been called, as we remember here, John the Baptist, beheaded and raised from the dead. He's been called Elijah, the return of the prophet. He's been called with some other prophets. Maybe he's just a really smart guy. Maybe he's just a good teacher. Maybe he's the great rabbi, right? I want to remind you, too, that he's been called crazy by his own family. You remember Mary and his brothers came to get him and take him home because they thought he had lost his mind. So you have not just these possibilities you're listed here, but you have all these possibilities for who Jesus is. And in the midst of all that, he asks, who do people say that I am? Well, you know, some people believe you, some people don't. Some people think you're a really good guy. Some people think you're a prophet. Yeah, but what do you think about me, disciple? Uh, what do you think about me, follower? Who do you say that I am? And you see, in that perspective, in that context, we begin to understand the gravity of this confession that Peter makes. What do I, I think, Jesus I think you're the Messiah. I think you're the son of the living God. That's what I think. See, in a moment of holy conviction, God asks, not to what do the crowds think, not what does the world think, what do you think? And here in this moment, there's clarity. You are the Christ. Oh, and we've been using you like as a bread-making machine. <laughs> I've been bringing all my friends just hoping they could finally see. And you're the one that God is going to send to save the world. 
It's a little embarrassing, isn't it? You are the Christ. I said this is a mountaintop experience. We're going to actually get into something next, which is beautiful. But I said this, but it's kind of like this journey at the peak with Jesus. So I won't say where this moment happens, but it's this experience, this unfolding of who Jesus is. Because the very next thing in verse 31, check out what it says. Then, then Jesus began to teach them, the disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, by chief priests, by teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days will rise again. Look at verse 32. Jesus spoke plainly about these things and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So there's this moment, that's what I'm talking about, the mountaintop experience, where everything now in Jesus' life will begin to press him toward Jerusalem and press him toward the cross and press him toward, he's, gonna, he's going from this season, if you think about it, of great fanfare, great celebration, the whispers, did you hear about this Jesus guy? Oh my gosh, he's healing people, he's feeding people, he's like no rabbi we've ever heard before. And in this moment where he could have, we would have said, keep going Jesus, keep doing miracles, this is more glory for God. He's like, the most glory from God will come when I now turn my attention and I am persecuted and I am ridiculed and I am rejected by every person who claims to have authority in this world. You see, there's this mountaintop experience with Jesus, this point of confession that he is the Christ that then turns him to teach truth to the disciples that life will not be this huge, big, fun ball, crazy. It's going to be hard. And it's going to cost more than you can imagine. And he begins to unpack the price he will pay for sins. He begins to unpack what must come to pass that men might be free, that God might be satisfied, the true mission of his work. And in this moment, he gets to this point where he says, and I'm going to die. Rewind that clock for a minute and read that backwards here, right? It says, I'm going to rise. There's good news. But before that, I'm going to die, right? I'm going to be killed. And then I'm going to be rejected by the teachers of the law, right? The chief priests, those who are in charge, the elders amongst you will all reject me. And I'm going to suffer and suffer and suffer before that. And in this moment, seeing all these beautiful things that we all love, right? We all love that. We could be with Peter and go, no way, no way. Listen, if you've seen what Jesus has done, if you've seen how he's answered the Pharisees and his accusers, who's going to reject Jesus right now? Who? Who would say no to the Son of God? Who would say no to the Messiah? This ain't going to happen. Who would ridicule him and mock him and spit on him? and drag him before the authorities. And oh, who would dare to put him on a cross? These hands that have healed. These hands that have broke bread. No, no way. No one in the right mind would do that. And so Peter the one that just said, you're the Messiah. I took the Messiah. Took, now look at the word. Took Jesus. Jesus, can I talk to you for a minute? This is crazy. That ain't going to happen. You're the Messiah. Did you hear what I just said about you? 
You're not going to die. You're not going to be rejected. You're not going to be persecuted. No way. And we can see that with Peter. I mean, we can see it with Peter through his eyes. In that moment, who could imagine such a fate for Jesus? Verse 33, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. So get the image. We've said it before at Family Bible Church. Peter takes him to the side and starts to rebuke Jesus. You're not going to, Jesus turns his back on Peter and looks at the disciples in the room. He ain't looking at Peter anymore. He's looking at all the rest. And he begins to rebuke Peter. Got his back to him. And he says, get behind me, Satan. You have not in mind the things of God, but only the things of men. You have no vision for the scale and scope of what I've come to do. You have no understanding. You've been so satisfied with the bread and the sight and the hearing and all this that you don't even want the truth of why, Jesus, of why God sent me, right? You don't want the salvation. You don't want the price. You don't have in mind the things that God has in mind. That's what he's saying here. This is the mission of God that I would be rejected and I would be spit upon and I would be put on a cross and I would be raised. That's the mission of God. You were only thinking like a man. And then he begins to teach hard things. Man, this is where the crowds go away, by the way. This is it. If you want to know the high point of Jesus' celebrated ministry and the crowds, this is it. There's a moment when he goes in Jerusalem, people are throwing down the palm fronds. I get that. But in his actual ministry, outside of Jerusalem, this is the moment where the crowds begin to winnow. Check it out. He took the crowd to himself and he said, if anyone wants to come after me, they're going to deny themselves they're going to carry their cross and they're going to follow me. If anyone wants to come after me, you're going to deny yourself. You're going to take up your cross and you're going to drag it behind me as I go to Jerusalem. If, if anyone here wants to pursue me, that's what pursuing me looks like. It doesn't look like accolades and fanfare and noise. It looks like suffering and service and certitude and following Jesus to a certain death. Verse 35 for whoever wants to save his life will lose his life. And whoever wants to lose his, whoever loses his life for me and for the sake of the gospel will save his life. He asks some rhetorical questions. What good is it if a person gains the entire world yet loses their soul? What good does that do? Or what can a man give to trade for his soul? Right? He's asking the question, is there any other mechanism with which you can make this transaction? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, will the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels? Do you hear that? If you're, if you're going to, he's talking to the disciples, but also the crowd now. He's got the crowd with him, right? And he's like, if you're going to follow me, you're going to take up your cross and you're going to follow me. But if you're going to be ashamed of me in front of this adulterous and wicked generation, isn't that funny? I mean, I read that and I felt so convicted. Because you think, you know, well, it's back then. But this speculation about who Jesus is, they happen now. Well, who was Jesus anyway? Some people say he didn't exist at all, right? I mean, this is a current conversation. Who is Jesus? And Jesus' question is relevant. Who do you say that I am? Who do you? Who cares about the crowd? Who do you say that I am? 
And in this moment of teaching, he begins to show his disciples, this is what life looks like. And he says this crazy thing. And if you are ashamed of me, the Messiah, in front of this wicked and adulterous generation, if you're embarrassed because I am the Messiah, if you're embarrassed to be affiliated with me in front of these people, I'm going to be embarrassed about you in front of my Father and his holy angels. I'll be ashamed of you for being ashamed of me. See, he puts in right perspective our misunderstanding about this life and what the purposes are. These are the things of God. And it's not like a guilt thing. It's not like, well, I better not be ashamed of Jesus because he'll be ashamed of me. It's like, where else do you go? He's the Messiah. Do you believe it? If you don't believe it, you're rejecting him. And you ought to sort that out. But if you believe it, you ought to believe it. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. And we ought not be ashamed. And then Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, some are standing here today who will not taste death before the kingdom of God comes with power. He's like, some of you are going to witness it. Some of you are going to see all these things come to pass. You're going to see the kingdom of God come with power. I would actually even say that in this moment, Jesus uh, there's a little foreshadowing about this coming of power. You see, the people who hung on, they might have sat outside Jerusalem going, I'm going to be my palm fronds ready, man, because he's going to come and he's going to dominate. They still didn't believe what he said, right? All right. <laughs> Watershed moment, man. Tipping point, right? You're on a teeter-totter. The whole thing just went this way. Bow. You thought you were over here with Jesus and you just, hey, we're going to get better and better. And then bow. No, we're going to go. and We're going to give our lives for the sake of the kingdom. We're going to give our lives that God might be glorified. And Jesus is going to give his life that all sin can be forgiven in this moment. And some of you will see the power of God coming. How does it affect us now, right? How is it? I, I put to you today this. These questions haven't changed. The call hasn't changed. And, and we are as, we have as much tendency to be deceived as anyone about it. Jesus is the Christ. There is no salvation, no salvation apart from Jesus. And it's a funny thing that that's even controversial to say, but the crazy thing is that there's a tendency to not want to say it. He's the way, the way, right? And, and there's this weird thing that as a Christian, you can confess other things. That I, I would say the question is, are you Christian at all? If you confess anything besides Christ, are you Christian at all? If I confess salvation besides Christ, is, am I Christian at all? Or am I where man has always been, which is at the absolute grace and mercy of Jesus the Christ? He is the Messiah. He died for my sins. He died for your sin. How does this go? Jesus, I'll believe you when there's bread on the table. Feed me. I'll believe you. How does it go? Jesus, heal me. Take this ailment from me. And I'll believe you. How does it go? Jesus, you are the Christ. The Son of the living God. Sent to die that we could be free. We don't deserve it, but we receive it. Healed or not, fed or not, suffering or not, Savior. See that? It's the right position. I don't know where you are today. The question stands. 
Not who does the world say he is. Who do you say that he is in your life? Who do you say Jesus is? And get this. Don't tell me. Tell him. This is who I say you are. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for the truth of your word, for the power, the power of your word to lay us bare as sinners and to also invite us into your arms for the work that you do. Uh, <laughs> even without your work, you're to be glorified. All the more in the work you do. Father God, so many of us have confessed false gods. We've bowed down before things that are unworthy. We've given our lives. We've exchanged our souls for things that fall short of the truth of the gospel. And for this, we ask forgiveness. We pray today, Father God, that those of us who are here who don't know you would make a good confession. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. You were sent to forgive my sins that I could be free. But we know this confession cannot be constructed by man. It can be only inspired by your Holy Spirit. And therefore, we beg you, would you make that move in souls today? Would you cause a soul to rise up and proclaim my Savior, Jesus Christ, today? For the way we go into the world, we ask that you would send us with boldness, not cockiness and not arrogance, but good confession. He is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ, sent for the sin of all men. Help us to do that well, Father. Again, we can't do it apart from your spirit. Today, as we respond to and worship, may you rule in hearts and minds. May you change us. May we be faithful faithful followers of yours, no matter where that path leads. We love you so much, and we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.